You're listening to the Liberty Grace Church Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit libertygrace.ca. I haven't read this book yet, but I'm very interested in reading it. It's called uh, On Getting Out of Bed, The Burden and Gift of Living, and it's written by Alan Noble. Now, Alan Noble is a very good writer, so I'm very interested in reading this book. And one of the things that makes me interested is that he argues that sometimes it's hard to just get out of bed. Have you ever felt that in your life? I have. He says this, tremendous suffering is the normal experience of being in this world. Hear that again, because I think everything in our world uh, tells us this isn't the case. He says, tremendous suffering is the normal experience of being in this world. And he's not a complete pessimist. He says, beauty and love and joy are normal too, but so is suffering. And so what he says is your life is going to be full of beauty, joy, you know, sunsets, sunrises, uh, love, suffering. It's going to be the whole bag. And if you're going through a period of suffering where it's kind of hard to get out of bed, that's completely normal. It's not that you're doing something wrong. That is what every human being is going to experience. And he says that sometimes the suffering is going to be so hard that it's simply an act of great uh, devotion uh, or of energy to get out of bed. And again, that might sound pessimistic to you. Probably the younger you are, the more pessimistic that sounds. Uh, The older you get, the more you're like, yeah, I thought I would get by. I thought that I could skate by and avoid this. But no amount of skill in life, no amount of... uh, Uh, strategizing is going to prevent you from suffering deeply and you're going to feel sometimes weary and discouraged. That could sound depressing but it can also be freeing for some of us to so just go like I'm not alone this is this is what life is like this is normal and the story that we're going to read today is about a man who felt exactly that way. So uh, for those of you who are new here or those of you who haven't been around long We're doing this crazy thing this year. We're going through the Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. I always hesitate when I say that. I know the Genesis 1 part, and I'm always like, are there 21 or 22 chapters in Revelation? Uh, And that's why I'm always like, from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation. Revelation 22, one time I said to one of my friends, we're going all the way from Genesis 1 to Revelation 21. He said, what a pity. I said, what are you talking about? He says, to go all the way through the Bible and to stop one chapter short, what a pity. So Genesis 1, Revelation 22. And uh, right now we're in the part of the Bible that nobody, not, not nobody, but I would say very few people read Jeremiah. We're in the darkest period of biblical history. I think this is like as bad as it gets. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. And I don't know what you're like, I would hate to be called, there's Daryl, the weeping preacher. Can you imagine having that title? Like, every time he gets up, he's like bawling. He's like saying mean things and crying. But that was Jeremiah. His ministry was, he had a difficult message from God to deliver to the people of Judah. And it was so upsetting for him that he was just called the weeping prophet. He also wrote a book called Lamentations. Uh, Lamentations, which is, you get the idea, right? It it doesn't sound like a cheery book. Like, he has got a hard message. Well, why is his message hard? Jeremiah 39, actually it happens a couple times in Jeremiah, describes the lowest 
point in Old Testament history. It doesn't get any worse than this. So Jeremiah had very good reason to be depressed. It tells about the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, I have to admit, I did not know about this. I was not paying attention growing up in church, or they never told me, I'm going to take the blame. This is so important for you to realize. Uh, I would encourage you to memorize this date. This is kind of like, uh, if you want to understand the story of the Old Testament, this is kind of like one of the most important dates, 586 BC. Memorize that. Like, seriously, 586 BC, it's a date of catastrophe for Judah. What happened? Babylon comes against Jerusalem. They besieged the city for months. Finally, the Babylonians capture Jerusalem and they destroy it. If, you, if you've been following the story of the Bible so far, you know what a big deal that is. Uh, David, I mean, okay, so go back up a little bit. Uh, Moses was promised, this is the land. God is saying, I'm giving you this land. Moses, Joshua conquers the land. They don't quite conquer Jerusalem. It's like a holdout city. David comes along, conquers Jerusalem. And God promises to David, there's going to be somebody sitting on the throne in, uh, in your line. I'm going to dwell here. I'm going to live in Jerusalem forever. Somebody's going to be on your th this throne forever, one of your descendants. 586 BC, Babylon comes, completely destroys the city. The temple where God promised to live, was raised to the ground. The Babylonians took all the temple furniture, the gold, probably the Ark of the Covenant, which was like God's footstool on earth, they took it with them. The temple was completely destroyed, the place of sacrifice. The king's house was torn down. The walls of the city were torn down. The inhabitants were either killed or taken into captivity. It was a complete and utter catastrophe. This was the point, and Jeremiah uh, prophesied this would happen. This would be the point where you're saying, what has happened? Has God completely turned his back on his people? This is, like all of God's promises, now make no mistake, God had said, if you don't obey my commands, this is going to happen. So God had warned them. But at this point, they're saying, it can't get any worse. Everything we feared has come true. This is bad. These are the worst times. This is a point where, if you're following the story, you're saying, is there any hope? It looks like God had completely abandoned his people. And I was thinking, you know, this was in the, this is going to be in the readings this coming week. Uh, this is kind of like the most important, one of the most important dates. Uh, I would say the most important date in Old Testament history. And yet I'm not preaching on it today. And the reason why is because I want to kind of take a personal look. Kind of, this is the sideways incident that took place. And the reason I like this incident is Jeremiah is like full of doom and gloom and weeping and like a uh, city being destroyed. And in the middle of this, you get a very intimate look at a real person whose name is Barak. And we're going to look at his story today in Jeremiah 45. We read the whole chapter. Here's the interesting thing about this. We get this tragedy, and I don't know about you, but I could talk about the destruction of cities and but it's interesting to zoom in on one person, and instead of talking about the destruction of the city, we just get to see it through one person's eyes. Here is the guy that we're going to see it through. He is uh, the scribe of Jeremiah. So Jeremiah prophesied. You want to picture 
this guy, remember, it's an illiterate society. And so Barak is there in an illiterate society saying, we need to record what uh, Jeremiah is saying because this is important. This is going to be, uh, we, we're going to need a record of this because of what Jeremiah is saying. It's so important. He was a professional scribe. So right away, you understand that sounds like a secretary, right? Like a court stenographer, but it's not. You need to understand back then, he would have been a, a very highly, like think of a lawyer or a doctor today. A professional scribe is somebody who would be like, you're literate, you're at the top of society, you know how to read and write, you're well, you work for the king probably. In fact, the tradition says that he was a royal scribe, so probably somebody employed by the king. He would have been a big deal. Somebody has said this, that he would have been trusted and admired. He would have, if he were around today, he would have a key to the executive washroom. Uh, he would have had like a great parking spot right by the front door. He would have been part of the country club. He was on the inside. He was kind of a big deal. The ancient historian Josephus says that uh, Barak came from a distinguished family. Now here's the really interesting part about this guy, Barak. So not only do we get an idea of what's happening in like the country at this devastating, the most important part of uh, this part of Old Testament history, but Barak is kind of cool for another reason. He might be the only person in the Old Testament of whom we have fingerprints today, which blows my mind. 1975, a team of archeologists found these clay document markers, uh, kind of like ancient bookmarks, except a lot more clunky. <laughs> And they, uh, an Arab antiquities dealer found them. Well, they were sat for about 11 years. In 1986, they finally managed to decipher these markers. And they found the seal of Barak, son of Neriah. Now, he was a royal scribe, so it makes sense that maybe something of his, like he does this work for the king, it makes sense that uh, he would have had a seal. So what's cool is they found his name mentioned. And now I have to put a footnote. There are people who are still disputing, is this legit? Is this like a forgery? So we don't know for sure, it looks legit. Later they discovered another marker that not only contained his seal, but a thumbprint. And it's likely that it belonged to Barak himself. And so even if you don't, you can go to Israel today and see what purports to be a seal of Barak, the, the scribe. It's kind of cool that we might even have his fingerprint all these years later. But here you have somebody who seems to be kind of a big deal. He's writing down Jeremiah's prophecies. It was hard work. When Jeremiah 45 happens, according to the date of the king that is mentioned there, it had been about 19 years probably since Jerusalem had fallen. So 19 years past 586 BC. He was discouraged. If you picture kind of hanging around, like Toronto has been sacked, uh, like everything's been torn down, like. Picture how discouraging it would be. Now, Barak had another reason to be depressed. In Jeremiah 36, we read that, uh, so Jeremiah wasn't allowed in the temple. Why was that? Because he always was so depressing. And people were like, here comes downer Jeremiah, who's always saying mean things about us. Jeremiah, like, you're not allowed here anymore. We're sick of your bad news. And so Barak goes. And Barak goes and he basically takes Jeremiah's scrolls. They hadn't gone around to kicking him out yet. And so Barak is there reading these, uh, you know, God's going to judge Judah, like God's going to judge Jerusalem. 
And somebody hears and says, we better tell the king this. And so these scrolls come to the king's attention. And in Jeremiah 36, we read that somebody said, hey, king, you need to hear this. And they're opening uh, the, what he had written. And we read this in Jeremiah 36. It was the ninth month. The king was sitting in the winter house. Uh, you're supposed to read in there freezing, probably. And there was a fire burning in the fire pot before him. As Jehudai read three or four columns, the king uh, would cut them off with a knife and throw them in the fire, in the fire pot, and the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was the fire pot. Now you're supposed to read that. If you picture I'm preaching and somebody's like, hey, Daryl, can I borrow your Bible? And then they rip pages out and they build, a, like we're having a fire pit. If you picture uh, going to Ontario Place, they're like, Daryl, can I have your Bible? And they start taking the sermon that I'd written, but even worse, like God's word, they start ripping what I'm preaching tonight out of the Bible and they throw it in the fire. That would be like, I paid a lot for this Bible. Not only that, like this is God's word. Like who cares about how much I paid for it? This is, um, for a barrack, this would have been so discouraging. A complete rejection of God's word by the king. The very guy who's supposed to be like the person who makes sure everybody's worshiping God. The, the most important guy who should be following God is destroying God's word. All that work, all that expense, and it all is being thrown away. God's word is being rejected. And so Barak, probably for a number of reasons, felt really discouraged. Discouraging time, a discouraging message. His work brought discouraging results. Nobody was listening. He had very little reason to hope. It's very possible that his own life was in danger. Because Can you picture being him? Like, after Jerusalem is conquered, he's still there saying, hey, you guys better repent. Like, it's in this context that we read in the passage that Julius read for us tonight. In Jeremiah 45.3, he says, Woe is me, for the Lord has added sorrow to my pain. I am weary with my groaning. I find no rest. Hear, his, hear this, like feel what he says here. He says, I, I not only have sorrow, but my sorrow is on top of my suffering. I'm worn out. I talked to somebody who was burned out recently, and he just said, like, the level of pain that he experienced, the level of, like, hopelessness that he experienced, uh, he said that he just felt like there was no hope. Everything was clouded with darkness, and he just felt like there was no way that things could ever begin to look good again. And it sounds like Barak felt this, right? He says, I'm weary with my groaning. I find no rest. Uh, the person I talked to who was burned out said, like, no matter how much rest I got, it took months before he started to actually feel better. He just felt exhausted all the time, mentally, emotionally worn out. And Barak, if you've ever felt that way, you read Barak and you go, I've been there. I know what it feels like. Uh, he felt the pain of everything going wrong in his life. Now, can you relate to him? There's times, as Alan Noble said, where it's hard to get out of bed. There's times where we just feel like everything is against us. There's no hope. We have every reason to be discouraged, and we just don't know where to turn. Well, here's what God teaches us in this passage. Because God zooms into Barak, and basically we learn three things. And this is, I have to warn you in advance, these are not the three things. The first one you would expect. The next two are not the ones that you would expect. But here's what we learn. First, God notices. Uh, verse 2 says, 
Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to you, O Barak. Can you imagine? Barak has been saying, oh, like, woe is me. Like, my suffering on top of suffering. I'm worn out. I'm discouraged. And God says, I've got a word for you. I've noticed how discouraged you are, Barak. I've got a word for you. And he repeats them word for word. And just a, I mean, I hope you know this. God notices your pain. God notices what you're going through. I love Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. If you ever feel brokenhearted, cling on to Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to you. He always draws near to the brokenhearted. Uh, now, I'm a guy, it took a while, I've been married 32 years. When Char was brokenhearted, uh, my, when I, we first got married, my response was head for the heels. Like, I do not know how to handle brokenhearted people. It's taken a long time for me to learn to run to the brokenhearted, not run away. It was like, before it would be like, denial, denial, uh, you know, and basically like, how can I, uh, maybe a joke will help, right? That, you know, if you heard, you know, that, none of that worked. God is not like that. God is not uncomfortable with the brokenhearted. God is not looking for an exit strategy. God is not looking for, God is close to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. I want you to think about this. This, one of my friends posted a picture, he was in New Zealand right now, and he posted a picture of the sky, and it's only a picture, I can't actually being there, be, I can't imagine being there. It's stunning, 200 billion galaxies in the universe. You look out on a night in a place like New Zealand, and you see, you look up, and if the atmosphere is right, you see how vast the universe is. 200 billion galaxies, God is running them all. He's got a lot going on. He's very busy. It seems like our problems are so small. Right now, Shar and I were talking when we phone our doctor. It almost feels like you've got to run the gauntlet. It feels like you've got to, like I'm a, are you a patient? Yeah. What do you want? And then you almost got to make a case for like, please see me. Like I'm sick. I need help. Do you ever feel like it's hard to get anybody's attention? You never have to worry about getting God's attention. The Bible screams, does God, the answer to your question, does God actually care about me and my little problems? And the Bible screams the answer, yes, God sees. Not only does God see, he cares. In fact, he comes near to us in our trouble. He saves the crushed in spirit. Another psalm, Psalm 56, verse 8. I love this psalm. You've kept my tossings. You've kept count of my tossings. Tossing, you know, that night in bed that you can't sleep. You turn from left to right. God's like, one, two. Like, God's paying attention. He's not overlooking it. He actually sees, okay, like, this is a rough night for them. You put my tears in your bottle. You're crying, and God is there. As the tears go down your cheek, God's got a little bottle and saying, your tears are so precious to me. I'm collect they matter to me. I'm collecting them. God is not only aware, but your tears are so precious that he cares for them. God cares for you. Barak is there complaining. Have you ever complained to God? Have you ever said to him, I need your help over, there, over here. God, please help. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, you can cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Are you weary and discouraged? My family, I mean, I don't want to run my family down. My 
Josiah's going to need so much therapy because we raised him. Like every, it's a story of every generation. My family growing up was like basically, um, you know, we were British uh, influenced. Uh, suck it up. Like basically, like life's hard. Suck it up. Like uh, pull it together. Soldier on. The Bible says, "Listen, you don't need to pretend." I. I am willing to hear your brokenness. I am willing to hear your struggle. The story tells us that God notices, that God knows what you're going through. You don't need to pretend God really cares. Okay, so the first one is one you'd expect. I hope it comforts you tonight. I hope for those of you who are there tonight, I hope you feel this. God cares what you're going through. But here's the second thing this passage tells us, which is a little bit surprising. The second thing here that chapter 45 teaches us is, not only does God care, but it might get worse. I told you, this is like a curveball, right? You expect the next thing to be, God cares, God's gonna, no, look at what happens in this, you know, Barak's like, God, I'm so discouraged, and God's like, I know, I hear, I care for you. But then, I would expect God at that point to say, you know what, Barak, you need a break, like, you need a holiday. So let me get you some time off, or how about some self-care? Like, if you've been journaling lately, like, try breathing. Some breathing exercises would really help you. Or maybe some theological truths, like, Barak, I love you. Like, I, now he does say this in a little later. He gives him some reassurance. But actually what God says to him is actually kind of hard. After acknowledging that God heard him in verses 4 and 5, this is what God says to him. Thus says the Lord, I've I've heard your complaint, Barak. It's come to my attention. I care for you. But behold, he says, this is what the Lord says. What I have built, I am breaking down. What I have planted, I am plucking up. That is the whole land. And then he goes on to say in verse 5, I am bringing disaster upon all flesh, declares the Lord. For somebody who is discouraged, who wants some hope, this is not exactly encouraging. But what a necessary word for Barak and for us. Here's what I think God is saying. We want to cling to the hope that when we're going through hard times, that things will get better. And things indeed will get better. We're going to get to that. But in the short term, God says to him, actually, things are going to get harder first. The problem is that we see ourselves as the hero of the, like we're in a movie and all of us are our own starring characters. Like right now, you guys are all the supporting cast for the movie that is Daryl, as far as I'm perspective, my, my perspective. I go through life thinking it's all about me. And I meet like even the people who are most important to me, if I'm not careful, become the supporting characters of my life. It's a story in which, and God says to him, whoa, that is not actually an accurate picture of life. I think that's how we all function. But God points out the picture and says, Barak, I want you to see that I'm doing something. You are not the starring character. I am the main character. You are a supporting character in my story. And you need to see that what's happening is much bigger than your little life. I'm doing something in the world. You're caught up in it. It's not all about you. And actually, what's happening is not all about you. It will affect you, but it's not all about you. I'm accomplishing my purposes among the world. I'm reading right now Tolkien's Fellowship of the Ring, and many of you will know this 
if you've seen the movie or read the books. Frodo gets the ring. The hobbits love nothing more than being in the Shire. They love like eating multiple meals a day, like the, uh, unbelievable. They just like to like be lazy and eat all the time and enjoy life in the comfort. They hate adventure. They just love being comfortable. But you know the story. Frodo has the ring. He does not want the ring. Frodo has been sent on a mission. He hates missions. He just wants another meal. He wants another lunch. And Gandalf, he's talking to Gandalf about this. And Gandalf is explaining to him that not only does he have this responsibility, but that the shadow, evil, is taking shape and is growing again. And Frodo says, I wish that it had not, need not have happened in my time. I wish that this had never happened to me, he's basically saying. He wanted an easy, carefree life. He didn't want to get caught up in, in inconvenience and suffer. And Gandalf replies, I love what Gandalf says. You, you probably have heard this. So do I, said Gandalf. And so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. And already, Frodo, our time is beginning to look black. And I love that message. What Tolkien is uh, picturing there is, man, a lot of us would say, I wish I didn't have this hardship in my life. And the wizard says, I know. That makes total sense. But you don't get to choose the hardship. You're part of a bigger story. Uh, Frodo, you have no idea. Your comfort is not the point. You got to destroy the ring. Uh, Beric, I know. Like, you want an easy life. You're a scribe. You're important. I know you just want to exist. But you're part of a bigger story. Right now, I'm doing something in the nation. All you have to do is decide what to do with the time that's given you. Friends, I don't know why. One day we'll figure it out. Why was my life so hard? Like, why did I go through this hardship in my life? And God might say to us, yeah, actually, it's going to get worse. I wish I could tell you that, you know, it was all about you and that I'm going to move and your life is going to get better. No, like, the reality is some of us might die prematurely. Some of us might experience unbelievable hardship. We'll never understand why. Some of us are going to go through, who knows? Who knows what? I can't even predict what it will be. And God turns to us and says, I care. I'm not promising your circumstances are going to get better necessarily. You may be called upon to suffer. It's not because I don't care, but it's because I'm up to bigger things. And you don't even see the full picture, but I'm up to something. God cares, but things still might get worse. But there's one more thing that he teaches us, and this is convicting, super convicting for me. So God cares, things might get worse. And the final thing that he says, man, do I ever need this. Remember, it's not all about you. This sounds like bad news, but it's actually really good news. Remember that it's not all about you. These words are at first deflating, but if you really get them, they're liberating. Jeremiah 45, verse 5. God says to Barak, do you seek great things for yourself? Okay, so pause there. Don't you all want to answer yes? <laughs> Do you seek great things for yourself? Duh. Yes. Millions in retirement funds. Promotions. Uh, a resume that would kill, like, 
being built. Like I want people when I'm walking down the sidewalk, you know in Liberty Village, two walk astride and you're walking and they just don't even look at you, right? They just plow right into you because they're not gonna move to one side and make room for you. Don't you wanna be built so that people see you coming and they're like, move out of the way. Like, look at this person. Like, do you see great things for yourself? Yeah, of course. We want our names to be big. We want to be big deals. We want it all. We want to have it all. We want to serve God, of course, but even serving God, we want somehow that we'll get all the perks. God says to Barak, do you seek great things for yourself? And all of us have to go, yes. Like, give it, that's what I want. I want to be a big deal for your glory, of course, God. Make me a big deal for your glory. And God turns to Barak and says, do you see great things for yourself? Remember, Barak is a big deal already. He's like the upper crust. He's like a literate. He was a big deal. And God says to him, seek them not. For behold, I'm bringing disaster upon all flesh, declares the Lord. I will give your life as a prize of war in all places to which you go. In other words, he says, Barak, you're not going to have a great life. I'll save your life. I'll preserve your life. But don't seek great things for yourself. What he tells him is, don't aim for the kind of greatness that is about making your name great. That is not going to satisfy you. That is elusive. All you'll get is a big ego. Uh, You can have a big condo. You can have all the money in the world. You can have a great reputation. You can have all of that. Don't base your happiness on any of that stuff because it simply doesn't matter. Base your happiness on the greatness of God and on the privilege of serving him. Uh, Tim Keller, a preacher in New York, died this year. His last message that he recorded to the church that he used to pastor, he basically quoted this passage and said, my dying words to you are this as a church, the church that I planted in New York City, a church that actually is part of our story, like the reason that we planted Liberty Grace Church was the impact of Tim Keller. So, And Tim Keller's last words to his church were, reflecting on this verse, saying, do you seek great things for yourself, church? Don't. Uh, Be all about God. Don't seek great things for yourself. Seek great, live to please and honor God. That should be the purpose of your life. And he wrote a book a few years ago, I highly recommend it, called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. And in the book, he argues that the whole point of the Christian life is to get to the place of gospel humility where you realize God is a big deal and you're not a big deal, where you lay down your desire for greatness for yourself and you lay it down for the greatness of the gospel. And he says this, actually, what the gospel does is it doesn't make you think of yourself, uh, think less of yourself. It actually makes you think of yourself less. You don't think less of yourself. You actually think of yourself less often. He says this, true gospel humility, true freedom means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself, the freedom of self-forgetfulness, the blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. Near the end of his life, uh, they used to like going up to Lake Erie. Uh, His wife loved going up there, so they would vacation. He loved the success of ministry. He would admit, like, my wife liked to go to Lake Erie and relax. I like to do ministry and get, like, people patting me on the back. Good sermon. Way to go. That was profound. Near the end of his life, he couldn't go to Lake Erie because he was too sick. His wife didn't get what she wanted. 
He couldn't preach or do anything because he was too sick. They lost everything but God. And he said, I learned, you know, the freedom of self-forgetfulness. Don't get your meaning in life from anything, from vacation or whatever, from a nice apartment, from the acclaim, from doing things for God. The only thing you have left is God himself. And he argues there's a freedom. When you stop seeking great things for yourself, and instead you cling on to what you already have that's great, which is the greatness of God, when you have a bigger view of Jesus, when you have a bigger view of the grace and mercy of the cross, that Jesus died for you with a love that will never let you go, that as God becomes bigger, as the cross looms larger, as you see the magnitude of Christ's love for you, you can actually let go of making your name great. You can let go of, now we all want a comfortable life, but you can even let go of that. You're free to stop seeking great things for yourself and be contently, uh, content simply by being his servants. That is enough because God is enough. This is a hard passage. This is one I needed to hear this week. This is a passage that tells us that life is hard, but God cares. Things might get worse, but after all, it's not about us. It's about God. And we have God, and if we have God, we have everything we need. When we see the beauty of Jesus, we'll be freed from making our lives about ourselves, and we'll experience the freedom, the joy of self-forgetfulness, even in the hardest times. And so, Father, give us this view of Jesus. I don't know what uh, some of us are going through. I know some of us in this room are going through a hard time. And you come along and say, I care. But I'm not promising the circumstances will get better. But I am promising you something better than your comfort, uh, than your uh, circumstances. I'm promising you myself. Don't base your life on things getting better because they might not. Base your life on something that will never be taken away, which is my love for you. A love in which the story eventually will resolve into something beautiful, in which each of us will live in your presence in eternal joy. In this short term, it might get worse. And so, Lord, help us to see that our lives are all about you. Free us, Lord, from seeking great things for ourselves. Um, allow us to forget ourselves and be caught up in your greater story. And help us, Lord, to find our comfort and hope ultimately in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.